my fellow galactic travelers, and welcome back to Planet 8. This is your mission commander, Larry, speaking to you from our hidden base. Chief Engineer Bob is here by my side as always in the command center, and circling Planet 8 in our orbital spy satellite is Reconnaissance Officer Karen. And on this episode of Planet 8, your intrepid crew is going to take a deep dive into disaster films. We're going to start off in the decade of disasters, the 1970s. <laughs> um, straight away, uh, we'll kick it over to the satellite. Karen, why don't you give us a little uh, background on uh, this this episode, this podcast, and then we'll uh, take it from there. Okay, Larry, thanks. Thanks for the intro. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, some might say disaster films. Are you guys having some mission creep? Are you going into an area you shouldn't be? No, we're not, because let me tell you why. Um, disaster movies are also, while they may seem like they are steeped in reality, they have a great fantasy element to them. Indeed. <laughs> you know, I mean, they, they uh, the stuff that happens in these these movies is such a heightened reality that we definitely can place it within our milieu of science fiction, fantasy, and, and horror. Uh, also, you know, you have uh, some amazing and maybe not so amazing special effects in a lot of these films, which is also our Ballywick. So, um, yeah, we kind of got the bug to do this. I think uh, it was late last year. I think I heard that it was the... 50th anniversary of Poseidon Adventure, and I was like, oh, wow, we ought to be doing some disaster films, and we all agreed that was a worthy cause for us to take up. So, that being said, we we each picked a, a film that we wanted to watch and talk about, and I guess I will get us started, uh, and I, I decided to sit down and, and watch and re-watch and read about... <laughs> <laughs> the the aforementioned Poseidon adventure. Um, 
So Poseidon Adventure wasn't necessarily the first disaster movie. Some people like to say Airport was, although I don't really see Airport as a disaster film per se, um, because it was an airplane. It wasn't really a natural disaster, so to speak. But Was it anyway. a disaster at the box office? No, it oh, wasn't even a well. disaster at the box office. So, so uh, Poseidon Adventure definitely has sort of that template that a lot of the other films would follow, um, you know, with uh, some sort of huge natural disaster and then people trying to survive and you have some sort of all-star cast and, you know, over-the-top acting and all that kind of stuff. So... Well, and I'll, I'll say Erwin Allen was involved. Well, yes, as well. So yes, this, I'll I'll, yeah, I'll be discussing that too. <laughs> oh, he yes, he, he earned the sobriquet the Master of Disaster because of his many uh, disaster movies. So Poseidon Adventure uh, premiered on December twelfth, nineteen seventy two. It was a twentieth century Fox production. Erwin Allen was the producer. Um, interestingly, it was. Adapted from a book, also called The Poseidon Adventure, written by Paul Gallico that had come out in 1969. Um, and uh, what our, our listeners will be interested in, the uh, music was by John Williams, mm-hmm. who at that time was not, you know, as well known, certainly, as he is now. Uh, also, uh, somewhat interesting, it was orchestrated by Alexander Courage. That name may be familiar to Star Trek fans, as he did the music uh, on the original Star Trek series. Um, Of course, it was also well-known Poseidon Adventure for the song The Morning After, which was not written by John Williams, uh, but written by Al Kasha and Joel Hershenhorn, and it was nominated for an Oscar and actually won Best Song uh, in 1973. But I'll get into the uh, Oscar nominations in a bit. Uh, Another interesting fact is the art director on this, William Krieber, was also uh, the art director. He worked on Planet of the Apes and Beneath the Planet of the Apes. So he's got a little genre cred. And he worked with Irwin Allen before on... um, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and Lost in Space. So he was uh, well-versed in what Erwin Allen wanted to do. So uh, with with uh, Poseidon Adventure, Erwin Allen wanted to make this big, all-star Hollywood epic, you know, with sensational special effects and, um, you know, kind of harking back to what people had done in the past in Hollywood. But uh, Hollywood at that time in the early 70s was really focused on doing more of these smaller, sort of more personal and certainly much cheaper films. So, um, you know, his idea was a wild success of it's mad, mad, mad world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, he wanted to have this big all star cast and bring in these veterans and all this other stuff. So he goes to 20th Century Fox and, you know, they, they're looking at like a budget of um, five million, which at that time was like nothing to sneeze at. And 20th Century Fox had just had a series of big bombs. Um, you know, Dr. Doolittle, Hello, Dolly. We kind of talked about this when we did the Beneath the Planet of the Apes episode, which 
folks can catch if they uh, scroll through our list of episodes. So, so Fox was really um, gun shy about doing another big production. And so at first they're, they had a meeting with Alan and they're like, eh, we're not going to do Poseidon Adventure. And he's like, wait, wait, wait. So he talks them into putting up half the money. So then he's kind of like, holy crap, what am I going to do? He goes across the street to his country club and a couple of his buddies are, are golfing there. And he goes over to him and he says, look, can you guys guarantee the money, this other half? And they're like, sure, well, don't worry about it. So, <laughs> so he gets funding for the other half of the movie from a couple of his buddies and they move forward um, with the film. And so with this, he gets his cast. So not to belabor it, but it was a pretty uh, amazing cast of, of stars for that time, if you go and look at it. So you had Gene Hackman. He was the one like new Hollywood person. Uh, at that time, Gene Hackman was still considered to be like a young happening kind of actor. And um, he plays the Reverend uh, Frank Scott, who is sort of like the angry at the world, angry at God guy. Um, then we have Ernest Borgnine. <clears throat> He's the uh, detective Mike Rogo, the police detective who's married to Stella Stevens, who plays uh, an ex-prostitute. So they have this really rambunctious relationship going on all the time. Um, Red Buttons plays James Martin, who is sort of this, um, I don't know, a single unlucky in love kind of guy. And apparently, originally, Gene Wilder was supposed to play that role, but he had some sort of conflict, couldn't, couldn't uh, do it. Um, then kind of uh, the other more well-known people in the cast playing the, the uh, Rosens, the retired uh, uh, Jewish couple, was Shelley Winters and Jack Albertson. Of course, Shelley Winters has a big turn in the movie. I think most people have probably seen it. She has this famous underwater scene where she swims. And um, originally they wanted to get Esther Williams, which kind of uh -huh. makes sense if you know about Esther Williams. Uh, she didn't want to do the role because they wanted her to gain weight because <laughs> Mrs. Rosen is a large lady. But Shelley uh -huh. Winters, Winters was like, sure, I'll do it. She gained 35 pounds for the role. And never and lost it. No, just kidding. <laughs> she did have some trouble losing the weight. You know what's funny? In the remake of the Poseidon Adventure, which was done probably in the 90s or 2000, they're interviewing Kurt Russell and they're asking him, well, what role have you? And he says, I'll be playing the Shelley Winters role in this film. You know, I never <laughs> saw that remake. I'm really curious about it now. It, it's interesting. Um, yeah, I didn't know there was a remake. I thought the remake was Titanic. <laughs> 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 so um so then we have them um roddy mcdowell is in it and when i was younger i always thought he had a bigger role but watching it again he actually has a relatively small role as a um a waiter who bites it kind of midway through you know what just uh, dawned on me i'm sorry to interrupt again but that it was chico and the man I was thinking it's it's uh, oh, Willy oh, Wonka Jack the Alberson. grandfather, but he, well, he was in the man. Well, he was he was in Willy Wonka too. Yeah, he I was. Mean, Jack the man. He did a lot of stuff. He you know he was a character yeah. actor. Interesting. Okay, sorry. And then you know various uh, other character actors. I mean Leslie Nielsen was in it as the the captain right. of the ship, which 
now we kind of think of him as always doing sort of these parody roles, but he was like this serious ship's captain. You yeah, know? I mean, before the whole, you know, police squad, naked gun films and all that. Yeah, he was totally serious. That, that was his first comedy gig, basically, was was uh, police squad. Police squad. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, they had this big um, cast, you know, they put this thing together. Um basic plot i don't want to you know belabor it too much but the poseidon is this ship essentially a stand-in for the queen mary it's an old ocean liner they're gonna um retire it and scrap it and it's got to travel from uh, new york city to athens over the um new year's eve i don't know how long it's supposed to take it but starting out sort of on new year's eve and uh, the owner of the ship wants it to get there really fast, so they throw caution to the wind, and they don't take on the ballast they need. They go at full speed, and they do all this other crap that they really shouldn't do. And uh, what happens is there's an earthquake underwater. It causes a tsunami, and it hits, of course, right when everybody on the ship is celebrating New Year's Eve. And so... The ship capsizes, everybody's trapped, uh, you know, the ones who survive, some people don't make it when the ship flips over. And then our uh, all-star cast decide, okay, we're going to try and get up, go up, but which is really upside down. They, they cleverly call it uh, hell upside down in the posters. They have to go up through the bottom of the ship to hope that somebody will rescue them there that the the little kid who's studied the ship keeps going well the hole is only one inch thick at the engine room if we get to the engine room we can we might get out and yeah, so I, I don't remember the name of the story but but there was a boat that, not that size where it actually happened and that's how they rescued some of the people uh, and I, I should have wrote it down, but I, I apologize. I'll... Well, the the whole thing was inspired because the guy who wrote the story, Gallico, he was on the Queen Mary when they were in um, really high seas, high waves. And I guess it freaked him out enough that he wrote the story about the ship capsizing. <laughs> so, you know, with this whole disaster, uh, Gene Hackman's uh, Reverend Scott tries to lead all these people to the engine room and he quarrels a lot with Ernest Borgnine's character. They lose a few people on the way. They eventually, most of them, well, a little more than half of them get there and they eventually uh, do get rescued. Um, it's interesting, the original ending um, when they get uh, rescued, they, uh, there's a, uh, the rescue team has like a, a blowtorch and they burn a, a hole in the ship and they pull them through and you see them like open, coming out into open sky. Well, there was supposed to be a shot with the rescue helicopter looking down on the ship, but it was going to be too expensive. So Erwin Allen said, eh, forget it. <laughs> we won't do that shot. So he wanted to come in under budget. So he was like, eh, it's, it's enough for them to be pulled out of the ship. We don't have to do that shot. Um, they did actually film on the Queen Mary in Long Beach for some of the scenes that were um, pre-tidal wave, but most of the sets were 
most of it was built. So they, they had these sets that were basically upside down or like the dining room was on hydraulics and they could actually tilt it 45 degrees. So they really did have a lot of the actors just sliding across the set. Um, pretty amazing to think about. All this stuff was practical effects. And, you know, watching it now, um, I, it was so impressive to think like they had flames everywhere. They had water everywhere. They had explosions, you know? And and yet, uh, I watched a couple of little documentaries on it. Um, nobody got hurt. They were super cautious about everything, very careful with everyone, and nobody got hurt. But, man, it looked good, you know? And you think about how hard it is to do explosions and flames and stuff. Um, so it was it was really well done. And the poor actors, they filmed everything in sequence, you know, most movies, they'll film things out of sequence to save money with sets and stuff. So these people got progressively filthier as they went along. And they had to, like, make sure, like, oh, we're in this scene. You need more oil on you. So they would squirt them with oil or whatever. <laughs> so they just, they really suffered in this movie. You know, they were getting covered with grease and oil and all kinds of filth. Um, and most That's of them, Hollywood back then, right? They they like they did it. It was method acting, you know. They wanted to do their own stunts and crap. So they didn't have uh, fake oil back then. <laughs> they didn't Real have CGI deal. oil. Yeah. Um, so you know, it's. I thought it was a really um, watching it again. It was a, a really captivating movie, especially knowing like, hey, none of this is fake. It's just a lot more visceral to see that. Um, now, it did really well. Depending on the sources that you look at, it either brought in $93 million or $125 million, which is like $600 million today. So it, it did exceptionally well. And the, um, the Academy Awards, it, it got eight nominations. So Shelley Winters got a nomination for Supporting Actress. It was nominated for Score. Um, original song, which it won, uh, costume design, sound, art direction, film editing, and cinematography. And then the Academy gave it a special achievement award for visual effects. Hmm. So Poseidon Adventure, I'm, I'm saying, hey, this is a, a pretty good movie. Um, if you want to see a disaster film, I would say, uh, you know, this is a good place to start. It's it's definitely um, entertaining, and yes, it's like over the top, but you know, just get your popcorn and sit back and enjoy That's it. Right. Well, it is Irwin Allen. It's got to be over the top. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I I saw it in theaters when it came out. I don't really think I've seen it since. I do remember. I know maybe it was in the trailer or something, but there's that one scene where it, is, it had turned over, and the one guy falls like down into the skylight yep that, that was a pretty cool shot yeah I, I remember it best from mad magazine when they did poop side down adventure <laughs> i may have that issue around here somewhere i don't know <laughs> but no i was definitely impressed with the cast definitely oh yeah it was you know one of its first of its kind um and it kind of launched you know, uh, all these we were before the podcast, we we're talking about all these other films in the 70s. And, you know, could this movie be considered a disaster movie? Could it not? It, 
it's interesting. I, I found a four pack DVD and it had earthquake, the Hindenburg roller coaster. And I want to say towering inferno. I'm, I'm not sure. I don't have it here, but I was like, all right, two out of the four could be a disaster picture. I don't know about the Hindenburg and, and roller coaster, but, yeah, we'll just roll with it. It was five bucks. Well, I know Towering Inferno was another Irwin Allen production. Yep. Oh, yes. Yes, indeed. Um, yeah, but like I said, I, I still have the the uh, DVD copy of this. I should upgrade to Blu-ray, see if there's any behind-the-scenes stuff on it. But, it, you know, I, I had the biggest crush on Nancy Drew. <laughs> in that film, and I was yeah. like, <laughs> still holds up today. And and Walker, if you Bob too, if you get a chance to see the remake, you know it it was okay. It was okay. Um, it it wasn't it, it wasn't a stinker. It, it still held the spirit of the first film. They changed some things around and um, had some fun with it. See, I always mm-hmm. preferred Poseidon Adventure to like Titanic. Because it was like, you know, same results just happened a whole lot faster. And like <laughs> half the time, isn't Titanic like three hours or something? It's, yeah, it's, well, so, you know. If you can't tell a story in 90 minutes, it ain't worth telling. It's a James Cameron film, so what do you expect? It's yeah. Be too long. Indeed. Um, you know, you got to give Irwin Allen credit. I mean... He'd made some movies before his foray into television, and they're somewhat successful films. Uh, he's a big fan of of the Big Top, so you know, as a circus film, he was going to do another circus movie. Wanted to do it in 3D after the Poseidon Adventure. Uh, he's looking for some properties to develop. Um, so you got to give him, you know, credit. He's, you know, he's up there with the creatives back yeah. in the day well i mean voyage to the bottom of the sea started off as a that, movie that's true that's before true. it was a tv series so you know your mission commander is is uh very old and forgetful who uh, bob are you going next or am i going next <laughs> <laughs> i can if you want uh yeah if you want to i mean that's I think, fine i think you're well chronologically i think your film is what 1973 so that would yes that would make sense Okay. It's funny. My film is 1973 and 1974. Hmm. Oh, no, 73 and 75. But we'll get to that in a moment. Um, but I'll start with the plot because, I, you know, there's probably a lot of listeners haven't seen this, but... Well, well what is the name of the film, Chief? Oh, I was getting to that next. Oh, okay. <laughs> the name of the film is Submersion of Japan. Ooh. You know, 1973. It was based on a novel called Japan Sinks by Sakuyo Komatsu, which was also written in 1973. So it came out quickly after the novel. Wow. Mm. Um, It was also released in the U.S. in 1975 as Tidal Wave, but we'll we'll get to that in a bit. But that may (laughs) be the title that most listeners are uh, more familiar with. But the narration in the beginning starts uh, talking about 200 million years ago, and the Earth was just a single continent. As the centuries went by, it split into continents that we know today. 32 million years ago, Japan split off from Asia and became its own archipelago and series of islands. So it cuts to present day, which 
then was 1973, geophysicist Dr. Tadakoro and uh, a contracted submarine pilot, Toshio Onodera, take a deep-sea submarine to the Ogasawara Islands to investigate tremors that were detected on the ocean floor. And for those uh, Godzilla fans, Ogasawara Island was home of Monsterland, which later became Monster Island. But I knew that sounded familiar. That is not, that is not part of this movie, though. I just thought, I thought, it would be a lot cooler if it was. <laughs> this yeah. was from Toho, though. It could have been. <laughs> so uh, they're accompanied by a group of scientists, and they discover that Japan is collapsing into the Japan Trench. Uh-oh. So Takadoro warns the government that this is the beginning of the end for Japan, and it will totally sink within the next two years. Oh, my. The government dismisses him as an alarmist. That sounds kind of familiar. Uh, soon after, <laughs> earthquakes ensue across Japan, Volcanoes erupt and tidal waves flood the country. As the prime minister pushes the wheels of government to assess the disasters, Takadoro meets with a mysterious benefactor, Mr. Watari, who fancies himself as a political influencer and agrees to fund his studies and future expeditions. So Onodera quits his job with the submarine company to work full-time as an assistant to Tadakoro basically because he believes in what's going to happen. So uh, Tadakoro's research proves his claim, and he prepares to make another presentation to the prime minister. But just then, a massive earthquake shakes Tokyo and just about completely levels the city and the surrounding area. Tadakoro convinces the government that another quake is imminent. So this, at this point, they take him uh, pretty serious. So two plans are devised. Plan D1 is further investigation of the Japan Trench, and D2 is the immediate evacuation of all of Japan. Oh, my God. So the prime minister begins negotiating with other countries, including the U.S., Russia, China, to take in as many refugees as possible. The idea being that there were three options. One would be start a new Japan in another part of the world. Two would be to integrate the population into other countries. Or three is just accept fate, remain in Japan, and sink into the water. Mm. So uh, a Japanese meteorological agency reveals that the original two-year estimate was actually incorrect and that Japan will sink into the ocean in just 10 months. Oh. Yes. So negotiations speed up and expand to other countries. Foreign ships and planes start to ascend on Japan to uh, load escapees and fly them off to their respective countries. By this time, tidal waves increase and more and more of Japan is underwater. 63 million Japanese remain in the country, which was at the time was about 57% of the population. 11 days remained until total submersion. Onodera is taking part in rescue operations as the Prime Minister announces the cessation of all rescue operations. Tadakoro decides to remain in Japan. Onodera, the Prime Minister and his cabinet, board a helicopter and fly off to Geneva. But as they leave Japan, they look back to see the country finally completely submerged into the ocean. 
So this isn't like, you know, Bob, we're not talking about, well, you know, these all are. (laughs) So we're not talking about something where it's like, all right, how can we stop this from happening? Get the scientists together. What can we do? It's like, oh shit, this is happening. Let's get, let's get out of here. So So uh, they kind of accept their fate. Worlds collide, right? True. They had to like figure out. Yeah. So uh, there are some interesting actors in this one. Hmm. Keiji Kobayashi plays Dr. Tadakoro. He was a spy in the movie Sanjuro. He was also the prime minister in Return of Godzilla, also known as Godzilla 1985. And he was the Japanese voice of Tramp in the Japanese uh, adaptation of Lady and the Tramp. That dub. Uh, Hiroshi Fujioka plays Onodera. He was a narrator of Ultraman Great, also known as Ultraman Towards the Future. Mm. Uh, he also starred as Toshio Tamura in the movie ESPY, E-S-P-Y which is kind of like a, a ESP spy movie. But he's best known as Takashi Hongo, the original Kamen Rider. Oh, Kamen Rider, I know. Tetsuro Tamba plays the Prime Minister, and uh, he played, he had a role in Message from Space, but he's best known as Tiger Tanaka in You Only Live Twice. Mm-hmm. Bond's uh, Japanese contact in that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, the movie was produced by Tomoyuki Tanaka, who basically produced just about all the Toho special effects movies at the time, starting with Godzilla, King of the Monsters, all the way up through the uh, 70s and uh, early 80s. Uh, special effects were supervised by Teriyoshi Nakano, who also did effects on the Godzilla films. And uh, he pretty much took over special effects on the Godzilla films in the 70s and also did the effects for Godzilla 1985. Music was by Masaru Sato, who also scored Godzilla Raids Again, Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster, Son of Godzilla, and Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla, as well as quite a few Kurosawa samurai films. And uh, the designs and storyboards were by legendary Toho designer artist Yasuyuki Inoue, who uh, he did storyboards and uh, designs for quite a few of the classic Toho films. In fact, when you look at like the Moonlight SY3 from Destroy All Monsters or the P1 or Planet X Saucers from Monster Zero... Mm-hmm. He designed all those, the Mazer tanks and uh, heat mm. cannons, everything. That was all That was all Inoue's work. So uh, Sakio Komatsu's original story, Japan Sinks, was made into two TV dramas, two radio dramas, two animations, and was also the basis for Submersion of Japan and a 2006 version by Shinji Higuchi, who recently has done things like Shin Godzilla, Shin Ultraman. Now, so in 1975, Roger Corman's New World Pictures adapted the film, dubbed and heavily edited into the American release Tidal Wave, starring Lauren Green. (laughs) Yes. So he was edited in sort of like Raymond Burr was in Godzilla, King of the Monsters and Godzilla Mm -hmm. 1985. Uh, Many things were left out of the original movie. In fact, the original movie is about two hours and 20 minutes, and they cut out an hour from the original film. So, Tidal Wave turned into sort of a convoluted mess. Many of the subplots, which I didn't really go into, or we'd be here all night, uh, (laughs) were eliminated, cut out, edited. And uh, 
basically the whole thing about Japan sinking into the ocean was basically edited out and the ex- explanation was a giant tidal wave was coming, which is why you had the name tidal wave for the American version. So uh, in Japan, the movie was a critical and box office success. In fact, it became the highest grossing film of all time up to that point. And wow. uh, if you want to see it, Submersion of Japan is easily found on Amazon or eBay. And mercifully, Tidal Wave seems to be lost to the ages. I could, <laughs> someone sent me a link to uh, an online version. And it was this, uh, the image was so dark you couldn't even see it. So I didn't even bother watching it. I saw it, like I say, back when it came out in the theaters. But, um, yeah, I haven't seen it in years and probably won't want to. But that is Submersion of Japan. That's a pretty, pretty dark uh, film. Wipe out all of Japan. It is. I mean, basically, it's Japan is gone. But, I mean, there is one subplot with Onodera uh, he gets it's sort of a romantic subplot because he gets fixed up with this one woman, almost like an arranged marriage type of thing. Um, basically, his boss fixes him up, and they have a sort of romantic relationship throughout the movie. She ends up going to Geneva, and he's like, "I'll find you," you know. But keep in mind, in '73, you didn't have cell phones. She didn't know where mm-hmm. she was going. She didn't couldn't say, "Well, my number will be and my address will be." So they just had to kind of right. find each other. So as Japan sinks into the ocean at the end, they show Onodera on the train heading towards Geneva, and it's kind of revealed that she's a couple cars up from him. So uh, it's kind of implied that they'll find each other in Geneva. So that was sort of the the scene that kind of lightened the load after you saw Japan just sink into oblivion. Man. That's intense. So, so there you go. Nice, dark, <laughs> and disastrous. That's right. Sixty-three well, million Japanese die. I will uh, brighten the episode. Well, no, actually, I won't. Uh, we will remain <laughs> with our disaster motif. I uh, I was going back and forth between earthquake and um, towering inferno. And uh, I have this wonderful book I've plugged, and I'll plug again, The Fantasy Worlds of Erwin Allen by Jeff Bond. Um, If you have an opportunity to find this long out-of-print tome, I highly recommend. It has everything uh, in it that that Erwin's had his his hands in. And, you know, there's a a lot of information on the uh, Poseidon adventure. Going into it, he had a lot of um, storyboards done, mm-hmm. you know, he was big right. on storyboards, which Spielberg and Lucas and, you know, Cameron and those guys utilize now to the, uh, you know, benefit of us, the viewers. Um, so after the success of Poseidon adventure, uh, Poseidon adventure, um, you know, most of the studios were like, well, you know, he kind of, that was lucky, you know, he had all those stars in there. I don't know. It, and Earl Allen got his people together. They're like, okay, we're going to show those mofos. This was not a mistake. We're going to do it again. <laughs> and so he was looking at uh, purchasing a book called, the, I think it was The Tower. Mm-hmm. There were two. It was The Tower and The Glass Inferno. And I want to say it was The Tower that he was looking at. And they're very similar. There are, there are subtle differences in the stories. 
And um, no, no, no. He was going for the Glass Inferno, and so was Warner Brothers. And they outbid him. And he was pissed. So when the tower comes out, he goes in there and, you know, I think Warner Brothers paid 400000 for their book and he paid three hundred and or maybe they paid three forty, and he paid 400000 Anyway, he gets it. And immediately he starts doing his Irwin Allen thing and he starts doing the storyboards and getting his designers involved and, you know, t- taps John Williams on the shoulder again. Can you, you know, work on this? And um, he gets his team together and... Erwin Allen, you know, had some chutzpah. He goes to Warner Brothers and he says, you know, you guys bought this book. I bought the rights to this book. And they're like, yeah, we're we're ready to go into production. He's like, oh, yeah, look at what I've done already. And the execs at Warner Brothers were impressed. And they're like, well, you know, he proposed a, a joint venture. And this wasn't that common back then. So here he is working with Warner Brothers to put what became the Towering Inferno together. And it's funny, there's copies of the paperbacks in, in the uh, book I was telling you guys about. And it says, The Tower, Richard Martin Stern. And it has a picture of a burning building. has the Warner Brothers logo on the right, Warner Brothers Press. Coming soon is Erwin Allen's production of The Towering Inferno. So, you know, here's century, 20th Century Fox and Warner Brothers, The Glass Inferno. Now see Irwin Allen's production of The Towering Inferno. So they're <laughs> referencing the movie with the reissue of these paperbacks. It was he was so brilliant in so many ways. And you know, some of the earlier shows, um, Time Tunnel, I'm I, I'm familiar with, but in in delving into the stories of Irwin Allen, I want to go back and, and watch those TV shows. Um so anyway, he convinces Warner Brothers to go into this and uh, they have drawings in here of of the um, of the concept for the building and and you know this is before CGI and what they did is they did matte paintings and they put this huge building smack dab in the center where the Salesforce Tower is if if I'm not mistaken I mean I was trying to look at the topography and see where the towering inferno would have been. And, um, you know, of course, they built a a model which was like, you know, 10 feet tall and um, used that for all the the burning and the effects and the explosions and stuff. But um, Erwin Allen goes and he assembles his cast. Now, this is what was fun to me. I I, I joked around about it's a mad, mad, mad world. Um, I I started watching it the other night. And some of the, you know, Phil Silvers and and Milton Berle, and it's like, how did they bring these people together? How did they convince them? Erwin Allen brings Steve McQueen and Paul Newman both into this film. And Steve McQueen, he Erwin Allen wanted him to play the Paul Newman role. And Steve McQueen's like, no, 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 I want to play the fire chief. The only stipulation was is that when they switched the role from Steve McQueen to the fire chief, he wanted word for word the exact same amount of lines that Paul Newman had. <laughs> and as you're watching the towering that's, inferno, that's like a Shatner move. Exactly, Bob, it's like a Shatner move. <laughs> so Steve McQueen, he'll go, you know, to the 81st floor and he'll be like, "Okay, Hallahan, give me the breakdown." Well, Chief, the fire's you know hitting the 82nd floor. Okay, well, we need to drop a line, and we'll also need to turn on the water and watch the heat. I want you to take you, you, and you. 
over to the South Tower and you, you and you to the North Tower. And I'm like, that's a lot of exposition, you know, for a, for a fire chief to be. That's because he needed the same amount of dialogue as, as I need uh, four Bob. more U's in there just to catch yeah. up. <laughs> I swear to God, Bob, you guys watch this. It, it, it seems that way to me. So um, big concern that they had was Steve McQueen and Paul Newman maybe bumping head, you know, two of Hollywood's big, you know, stars. And, and reports from the set said they got along great. They palled around. They hung out. Um, it was a it was a fun set. It was a dangerous set, like Karen had alluded to in the Poseidon mm-hmm. adventure. There was no, you know, Disney flames in the Pirates of the Caribbean made out of lights <laughs> and, you know, spirit gum. This was real you know, fire that they were throwing uh, around. Um, I, I don't know if anyone got hurt on this production, but I wouldn't be surprised um, if someone did. Anyway, it was Steve McQueen, Paul Newman, William Holden. Oh, such a oh, good wow. actor. Yeah. Um, I think it's On the Waterfront. It's an espionage film from World War II. He was in, um, he, he's done a lot of war pictures, but he was in the production and he would get a little upset because Steve McQueen and Paul Newman were big stars at the time, but William Holden thought he was just as big a star. And um, maybe he wanted more lines or more scenes, but, you know, such as life. Uh, Faye Dunaway, who looked stunning, great actress. Um, yeah, just really, I, I forgot how stunning she was. Fred Astaire. Uh, yeah. artist <laughs> uh, Susan Blakely was on here a young Richard Chamberlain and he played an asshole sorry kid <laughs> I mean you know he, he really played his character well uh, Jennifer Jones OJ Simpson the juice the played juice. a security guard um, a heroic security guard too he, he tried to you know, help out as much as it could. Robert Vaughn, Robert Wagner, Susan Flannery. So um, many people. Yeah, I got, you know, and I, as I was watching this, I'm like, hey, that guy, he, he was in Sanford and Son. He played Julio. Gregory <laughs> Sierra. Is oh, in, yeah. He uh, was in Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the Planet of the Apes connection as well. Um, I, there's just so many people, a young Dabney Coleman plays one of the deputy chiefs working with, uh, uh Steve McQueen's character. Oh my God. And that's part of the fun. You know, I, I haven't seen this for at least 20 years. And so we were watching this and God bless Jasmine. She, you know, the thing she, she watches for, for, uh, the podcast with me. Um, but the film still holds up today. She'd never seen it before. She thought it was great. It was exciting in all the right places. Um, little side note, uh, speaking about Jasmine, my mother-in-law uh, was came out the other day to the living room, and she heard the James Bond theme. I was watching James Bond. She's like, James Bond? You're watching James Bond? And I'm like, yeah. She's like, I love James Bond. And I'm like, well, come watch it, because she doesn't like Star Wars. She doesn't like the Avengers. She, so that was a bonding moment for me and my there, mother. There's hope for you yet. James Bond. <laughs> I'm like, you like Roger Moore? No, no, no. Connery. Yeah, Sean Connery. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so, uh, anyhow. Um, let me see. Like I said, John Williams was involved. Um, 
isn't it like three hours long, Larry? I mean, it's a long movie, right? It is a long movie. Uh, let me see. So I know like Irwin Allen and John Williams had the connection from Lost in Space because uh, right. John Williams did a lot of the music for Lost in Space, but under the name Johnny Williams. Right. So I don't, right. Know, I don't know when he be, went from Johnny to John, but <laughs> probably when he started <laughs> the movies. movies. But for TV, I'll be Johnny. For the movies, I'm John. Yeah, you can't be Johnny for a movie. Yeah. <laughs> so the the movie was 165 minutes long. Um, it was released on December 16th, 1974. Um, wow, so almost two years, not quite to the day, from Poseidon. He's like, oh. I got another one out, you yep. MFers. Yep, and that, that was basically... You know, and he was so pissed when Warner Brothers outbid him on that first book. And then the second book came out and he said, boom, we're going to do this. And he already started, you know, developing for the because he already had the concept of the Towering Inferno and, and that mm -hmm. the books were very similar kind of helped Irwin out. So uh, basically, uh, uh, you know, there's an architect, uh, the Paul Newman character comes up with this glass tower. He designed for the developer, um, William Holden's character. And it's 1,688 feet tall and has 138 stories. At that time, it's the world's tallest building. Mm -hmm. um, during testing, an electrical short starts and an undetected fire begins on the 81st floor just after another such short occurs in the main utility room. So everyone's focused on that first uh, fire, electrical fire in the utility room. Come to find out that um, Richard Chamberlain, who's the son-in-law to uh, William Holden, used cheap wiring to save, oh. you know, like a million dollars or five million dollars or whatever. It's like using proto matter in the well, Matrix and then... You know, look what happened. Yeah, you know? there you go. Um, so the, the and... The sprinkler systems were not finished being installed or given water. So oh, they got cheap there floors, too. Yep. It was a perfect Dang. storm. You know, Richard Chamberlain, he might have gotten all the wiring from Japan when he was in Shogun. <laughs> <laughs> Brought it over. Hell, I got to donate some wire. Anjin san. Use better wiring. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they, they made it a point to say that the wiring still made code, but it wasn't the highest gauge. And Paul Newman was like, you know, screw the code. I told you. Da, 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 da. Um, so there's some drama and stuff in there. Uh, what was it? And, and everybody has, you know, Robert Wagner's in this. He has a story. There's all these little stories going on within the main story of, of the building catching on fire. There's a, a party. You know, with uh, the mayor, one of the senators is there. I think Robert Vaughn plays a senator. I can't think of the actor who played the mayor. Let me see. I'm sure Robert Vaughn played somebody kind of greasy and slimy. Surprisingly, no. He was very noble. Oh, really? Kind of, yes. And he meets an untimely demise. That's so, sorry to spoil it, but. I've got to go back and watch. I haven't seen this in probably more than a decade. Oh, I, I had a lot of fun. Um, some friends of ours come over Friday nights, the Martins, and, and uh, they'd never seen it. So I, we're going to have another. Uh, yeah. And I think we'll have barbecue that night for dinner. So mm -hmm. 
But anyway, <laughs> make sure to light up all the tiki the torches. <laughs> what was that, Bob? Make sure to light up all the tiki torches. <laughs> yeah, I'll put a log in the fire too. Fireplace. <laughs> what was that, Walker? I said, yeah, make sure you, you burn the meat so it will go with the, <laughs> nice the theme of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> and and I'll, I'll get like some three alarm barbecue sauce too. So. <laughs> um, so the party's up on the like 102nd floor. The fire's on the 81st floor. And at first they're like, oh, it's okay. Fires don't usually travel farther than like four or five floors. How long have the sprinklers been on? As they look at they're like, uh, there are no sprinklers. <laughs> That's when Steve McQueen's like, okay, I need three men over there and five men over there, and I need this gauge hose. And um, and it's funny because he'll, there's one scene where he'll put on an oxygen tank. Then there's another scene where um, he puts on like a, a grappling thing because he has to like scale part of the tower to attach a hook to an elevator. Oh, no, no. It's from a helicopter. This was an exciting... You could tell this was Erwin Allen. I mean, there's helicopters, fires, buildings. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, Robert Wagner's having an affair on the on the 89th floor. <laughs> it was just like... <laughs> a lot of fun. I, it was a very exciting movie. Um, so, uh, I was talking about... Uh, oh, yeah. Johnny Williams. Now, as far as box office, the film was one of the biggest grossing films in 1975 um, with a theatrical retails of 48838000 in the United States and Canada. In January 1976, it was claimed that the film had attained the highest foreign film for any film in its initial release of $43 million and went on to earn $56 million. When combined with um, totals for the United States, Canada, and worldwide, 104,838,000. Um, yeah. So that's, when, that's when why they kept was, making them. Exactly. When everything was said and done, it was 116 uh, million. Um, there were some fun promotional things I wanted to mention before I, I forget. Um you know, and I'll tell you, these storyboards, um, some of them are color and it shows the flames traveling. And, you know, Erwin Allen, he, he filmed all of the action sequences in Towering Inferno. I'm not sure about Poseidon Adventure. So, um, let me see. I think he did have a hand in directing some of the action sequences in Poseidon. The, the director they brought in, uh -huh. uh, whose name was Ronald Neem, uh, had primarily made a lot of films that were more um, like dramas and romances and things like that. And he was brought in to, to handle the characters more. And so I think I think Irwin did have a hand in a lot of the action sequences in that there, there was a like not a making of, but it was like a little half hour vignette of uh, the towering inferno behind the scenes or something like that. And they show Erwin Allen more flames, George. I need more <laughs> light window. <laughs> the actors are like, whoa, avoid the light window. <laughs> you know? um, John uh, Gillerman uh, was oh. the was the director of the actors. Um, famously, he went on after Towering Inferno to direct 1976's. Oh, 
on. Right. Um, he did Death on the Nile, uh, 1984, one of my favorites, Sheena, <laughs> with Tanya Roberts. Okay. And uh, also King Kong Lives in 1986. <laughs> oh, well, nobody's perfect. Well, you know. <laughs> um, as far as awards... Um, Academy Awards, it was nominated for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight mm. nominations. Best Picture, it was nominated. Uh, Best Supporting Actor, uh, Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, which it won Best Cinematography. Mm. Also, uh, Best Film Editing, which it won. Uh, Best Original Dramatic Score, Poor Johnny, not meant for him to win this time around best song we may never love like this again uh music and lyrics by al kasha and joel hirschhorn hirschhorn excuse me one and um oh, was that happening actually, was that sung like on the 89th floor yeah sung at the reception bob oh, i thought it was robert wagner up on the 89th floor it, it was sung by maureen mcgovern <laughs> Dang! So, just just like uh, the morning after. How funny! Like morning. <laughs> uh, so they won best song and best sound. They were nominated but did not win. Um, the fact that Fred Astaire was nominated for best supporting actor was great. Now he didn't win the Academy Award, but Mr. Fred Astaire did win the Golden Globe that year for best supporting actor in Inferno. So, um, and then, you know, it, it was just a phenomenal success. And, um, there were these nice little promotional pieces that they handed out. There was a survival certificate that you got from certain films <laughs> saying that this will certify that so-and-so survived the burning of the towering Inferno on May 21st, 1974 and signed by the fire chief there's a cool button red button with the building on fire that says towering inferno surefire box office oh wait wait red button he was he was in uh, poseidon adventure <laughs> towering inferno different red button <laughs> um the poster if if you google the poster for the towering inferno it is one of the best posters ever um and uh, after Towering Inferno, I think he started working on uh, Poseidon Part 2. <laughs> Beyond the Poseidon Adventure? Is that the one with the gold, the treasure hunters or whatever? Beyond the, yeah. So uh, he, he worked on the circus film. I got some stuff in here. He wanted to do it in 70 millimeter and... There was talk about the Swiss family Robinson, and he wanted to do a 3D version of a circus picture. And I was wondering sure if he was doing like a circus disaster movie. <laughs> Elephants on a rampage. Hey, I, I tell you, this is one of the funnest popcorn movies. Um, yeah, so it, it, I like the Poseidon Adventure, don't get me wrong. Gene Hackman's one of my favorite actors. I'm not a big uh, Paul Newman fan, um, but Steve McQueen has some gravitas. <laughs> and um, there's a great, you know, when the movie's over, Ian Paul Newman have an exchange. And, and basically it's like, 
you know, you keep building these glass towers and I keep losing people. And it, it was almost like a throwback to like 9-11, you know, because it lost a lot of firefighters. A lot of people lost their lives in the tearing inferno. And um, Paul Newman says, well, what, what can we do? And, and uh, Steve McQueen says, bring us in to designing this so that we can, you know, give you tips on what will help us if there's ever a fire that breaks out. And I'm like, wow, that really makes sense. Um, anyway, fun movie, even though it was a disaster film, even though some people have some very untimely uh, demises, uh, it was still a lot of fun. Highly recommend it. And I, don't get me wrong. I, I love sequels. I love the Rathacon. I love uh, uh, Empire Strikes Back. But there was never a towering inferno to beyond the inferno. <laughs> and, and that is a good thing. The second inferno. The second I mean, inferno. you had like a zillion airport pictures. Airport um, 77, airport 75. You know, right. I watched airport um, with, with Dean Martin just for the fact that Dean Martin was in it. I think George Kennedy was in it. Um but I don't know. I, I remember loving the towering inferno and earthquake. Charlton Heston was in earthquake. Yeah. Oh man, That's I remember a... earthquake vividly back in the day because it was in Sensoround. <laughs> <laughs> so you go in there, and they basically had. Excuse me. They basically had a uh, huge bass speaker, and it would just rumble and shake all the seats in the theater. And then soon after that, Midway came out. That was also in Sense Around. And then it kind of, that was it. I think that was the last hurrah for that. But but it was cool in Earthquake. Because every time the aftershocks would hit, you're like, oh, here it comes. And your seat's shaking. (laughs) (laughs) Very early version of the D-Box. Oh, geez. So, So we still have disaster movies today they're still coming out um people still enjoy them yeah i mean what do you guys think it is about this genre that is so pleasurable because like you said larry i mean people are getting killed you're watching people die and these things but it's one of the things for me in this was you know you knew steve mcqueen wasn't gonna die and you knew paul newman wasn't gonna die but you know Everyone else did. So, <laughs> well, no, not not everyone else. But you know, the the whole thing with not having any sacred cows. You know, it's like anybody can go is more exciting to me in a movie or a TV series. Um, Game of Thrones, I stuck with it the whole, you know, nine yards. But that mm-hmm. they killed the main character within the first like episode and a half or half episode was like whoa. Um, and and it's exciting. I mean, when worlds collide, you know. Yeah. Um, going back to that, uh, the, the fun part with these Irwin Allen projects and, and I guess some others, because like you said, the more more modern versions um, brings in an all star cast. Not so much as these did. I mean, you had like 12, 15 stars of various you know degrees of, of popularity, um, you know, William Holden and then Julio from. Uh, son. I mean, you know, you got the gambit there. The juice was in it. Um, but the modern ones just don't have that. What was the, the last one I saw was when the whole northern hemisphere froze. What was that? 
Did you guys see that one? And we had to migrate down to. South I didn't border. see that one. No. I think yeah. like with the disaster films, because you know a lot of people like monsters destroying cities and things, but uh, you know with the disaster films, this stuff could really happen. A ship can sink. Uh, you know, a building can catch on fire. An earthquake could hit. So it's tsunami. almost like you know, shakes you to the core. No pun intended, but. Um, yeah, I mean, you just basically come out thinking, God, that could really happen. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was researching this and, you know, I was looking at Tyrion for an earthquake, but Meteor, uh, I think it was in the eighties. Yeah. That was like this, this huge meteorite was heading to earth and what we were going to do. And then, and later, you know, years after Bruce Willis had to, I I never saw Armageddon. Yeah. Armageddon. I never saw Armageddon. I, I don't know. I just didn't. It wasn't feeling it, but um, I don't know, Karen. What do you think? What What's the one of the French say? Je ne sais quoi. Yeah, no, I think you guys are right. I think it's that ability to kind of vicariously live through some sort of like horrible yet exciting, you know, incident, and and yeah, it's like it seems very realistic and and scary. But like you're still sitting there eating your popcorn, right? So you don't, you're yeah. not, you're not threatened. But it's it is very involving and exciting. And like you say, anybody could die. Like in the Poseidon Adventure, Gene Hackman, you know, he, he bites it. He's no leading everybody, and he, he he bites it. So well, he, he sacrificed himself to turn right. the, the. So, um, you know, I I thought Paul Newman was going to bite it in this one. They're they're. Um, Oh, Bobby Brady is in this one. Um, I can't think of the actor's name, but <laughs> um, they're going up a stairwell because the elevator's uh, blocked and, and the gas line blows up and blows out the stairwell. And he drops. And you're like, oh, I don't remember this. But, you know, he grabbed on at the last minute and was able to save Bobby and and stuff. But um, you would hope that you would be that noble God forbid if, if something like that happened to you, either on a boat or in a fire or a tsunami or, you know, and, and not be Richard Chamberlain pushing man, women and children off the window <laughs> to get the <laughs> escape. Women and children first. Uh, yeah, there's, a, you know, there, men, women, there were no children. Well, <laughs> Bobby Brady, but the men and women, there were some that were very noble and sacrificing themselves. And there were others that were like, get the F out. You know, I want to live. And um, so that was part of the drama part of it. You know, some of it's mm-hmm. fun and some of it's very dramatic. Um, there's a, you know, spoiler alert, but the the person who Fred Astaire has a love interest with and, and um, you know, he's a con artist. He's going to con her out of money. And she knew he was and, and, you know, they reconcile and fall in love and, you know, which is very possible in, you know, 40 minutes time. And um, she makes it to the very like five minutes before and then out she goes the window. And so at the end of the movie, OJ gives him her cat. And it's kind of like, oh, the cat survived. Thank God. You know, <laughs> moments like that uh, are just fun. And um yeah, I, I hope we do this again. I, they're, they're, like I said, Meteor and, and Earthquake. There's there's a couple more, you know, notable films. I think we could we could have fun with uh, on yeah. the subject. There's there's still some good ones, and there's some good later ones. But I feel like 
the further away, like the more recent ones just get more and more kind of ridiculous. In, with, in, the, with the advent of CG, exactly. Yeah. I mean, there there is a very, you know, when that guy falls through the, the window pane uh, upside down in the ship, Bob mentioned. Huh? That that's cool and that's real. Yeah, and, that's a dude you know, falling like thirty <laughs> feet into a thing. And it wasn't yeah, a dummy where that. you see him falling and the arms and legs are going in all these weird positions. Right, right. You know, yeah. Now it's like, oh, we, you know, showed this guy. God, what was that movie? Was it twenty twelve or whatever? Where the guy's driving through Los Angeles and oh, like, the yeah. roads break. And it's like. Get the hell out of here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Rock had one of those where he was like, yeah. 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 Um, But yeah, so. Um, Well, I tell you guys what, we we were talking about this and, you know, uh, our sensor sweep, we're going to kind of modify it a little. Um, We're going to share with you either an item or something that we're watching or reading. Uh, It could be something we heard in the news. Um, like all these UFOs getting shot down. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, hey, we, we had a pandemic. We we had an insurrection. We had a land war in Europe. Why not UFOs? Well, you know, look, the UFOs and the cattle population has dropped dramatically in the United States <laughs> in these months. So. But uh, let's start off with uh, with Chief. What, what do you got for us, bud? You, you reading anything? Yeah. Watching anything? Yeah. Oh boy! Well, I mean, been watching a lot of X Files. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert! That's right. X Files. What's that? We'll be doing some yeah. X Files at some point. So yeah, I've been watching a lot of that, and then sprinkling in other things like uh, I think I mentioned in a previous episode. Uh, we watched Wednesday and really enjoyed it. That was good. That was good. I, yeah, we watched that too. And uh, we also uh, have been watching The Last of Us. Everybody yeah. kept telling me how good it was. I had dumped HBO Max, and then suddenly it's like, oh crap! I guess I got to get HBO Max again. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's you know some episodes are better than others. Um, the recent one, I think it's episode five, had that great like just massive. No spoilers. I haven't watched it yet. Oh <laughs> man, wait till the end. It's really good. Or a uh, yeah, I bring my Kleenex box, my man tears Kleenex it's, box when I watch this. That show, I I thought I was writing off all zombie shows because I was just bored with the whole thing. But <laughs> the relationships in that show are for me what makes it worth watching. You mm-hmm. know, the it's, relationships and the end of the relationships. Well, yeah, sometimes there are short relationships. Well, and look, but, the quality of the writing for them to bring in those two guys to tell a love story that was epic. I mean, just poignant. And, and you know, you're afraid in the beginning of the relationship and then you develop trust. I mean, the whole, you know, and, and then the way it ended, and I, I was just an emotional wreck the next day. I mean, I just, I, I thought, you know. It, it, you know, that that kid, you know, could anybody love a kid with with the Mando more than Grogu? Well, now I do. Uh, you know, she's she's one of the uh, oh, I can't think of what how she's from, but she's one of the actresses from the Game of Thrones. And uh, it always trips me out when those actress or actors or actresses 
will will act and be like, well, you know, George, we're going to have to. And then you interview them and they're like, well, bloody hell, I didn't know what was going on. <laughs> what was I supposed to do? And you're like, wow, they're acting the heck out of that. I know. Almost no one is American. It's like they, they're all doing American accents and then they're all either like British or Australian or. Yeah, we see here. Yeah. We don't have accents. <laughs> you know, I I have it in my to watch list, but Pedro Pascal, I hear, did a wonderful job hosting Saturday Night Live. Hmm. Um, it, so, it, it, we watched it. It was pretty good. Oh, OK. OK. I, you know, you played I wouldn't go over the top opera. on it, but it was pretty good. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to, you know, most of the stuff I watch with him, I end up crying at the end of the episode. So I'd like <laughs> something where I laugh. So. <laughs> I don't know. For me, it's just Saturday Night Live has gone so far downhill since the Oh, it, it's not it's what it like, is. Yeah. yeah. I agree with you with, on that. Um, but, you know, I'd, I'd still like to chuckle at some of his stuff. Um, what about you, Walker? What are you, you going to share with us this go around? Well, I think I'm going to mention... A book. Mm. I know. It's like a book. What is that? No, um, does it have pictures? And this one did not. I I, I read, I just finished uh, uh, last week a uh, pretty well-known science fiction book by Philip K. Dick. So he's the guy who wrote the book that Blade Runner was based on. And this book was The Man in the High Castle, which they also did make a TV series uh, based on, but I didn't see the TV series. Yeah, I think my, I watched my, my one or two episodes. My friend Barry said, no, you got to watch it. This is great. And I just never really did, but. Yeah. Uh, interesting book. I mean, it was well-written. I know it's supposed to be a classic, but uh, man, kind of a whole lot of like individual stories that never necessarily all came together and it was really, I think it was interesting to me because it all takes place in an alternate reality where the Nazis and the Japanese won World War II. And mm. so it, it shows an America where the the Nazis control the East Coast, the Japanese control the West Coast. And it's, so it's like 20 years later and the people, how they're they're living, how the Americans, the former Americans have adapted to, you know, their new environment sort of. But um, as far as the storytelling, very unusual in that I didn't really feel like it had a real plot to it. So I know some people will probably be like, you don't know what you're talking about. But, you know, this is just my opinion, man. So um, <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, I thought it was kind of interesting world building, but sort of a meandering story that didn't really pay off for me. So, oh, uh, yeah, you talk wow. about Philip K. Dick um, at one point. This friend of mine, Brad, was living in Japan, and he wanted me to, like, buy all these Philip K. Dick novels and send it over to him. And uh, I bought one called Eye in the Sky, which uh, I kind of read the synopsis, and I looked inside, and I'm like, holy crap, this whole book takes place in Belmont, California, <laughs> which is where I grew up. And I so I said, okay, I'll buy an extra copy for me and read it. And yeah, I mean, he got a lot of the geography correct and everything. And I heard that Philip K. Dick like grew up on the peninsula in Cal up here in Northern California. Huh. So you know, he must have been to Belmont before because he had streets and 
architecture and everything, you know. I was written like in the I think in the early sixties, but mm-hmm. you know, Belmont doesn't change a lot sometimes. So uh <laughs> you know, it's like, oh I recognize that and that and yeah, I, I still have the book, but yeah, I should probably read it again. It's been quite a while. But it's pretty good. Well, a good chunk of this book took place in San Francisco, so it doesn't surprise me. You probably did spend time in the Bay Area and learn a lot about it, so that sounds uh-huh. about good. What about you, Larry? Well, you know, I probably mentioned this before, but I'm having a lot of fun watching the Kino Lorber release. Uh, all three seasons or two and a half seasons of uh, Night Gallery. Hmm. And I've I've uh, got some some books that Feature Features put out and um, having fun. There's this episode with uh, William Wyndham. Oh, who played um, Weepy Willie? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Decker. He played a uh, right Command- Commodore Commander? Commodore, Commodore yeah. Decker. Commodore Decker in the Doomsday Machine. Anyway, there was this episode called and it, and it's the least night gallery version of night gallery they're tearing down tim riley's bar oh i've heard of that one okay yeah and it's it's just basically a story about getting old and you know his wife passed away and his his father passed away and you know there was this bar where they would celebrate birthdays and you know just get together on a friday after after work and you know everyone at work is younger than he is and you know he can't keep up with the salespeople or you know and i'm just like sitting there like oh my god this is like playing payday you know it's like you're playing payday and it's like pay your insurance it's overdue and you know your electricity is going to get cut off and i'm like what what kind of game is this (laughs) so anyway um ultimately it it actually ends with a happy ending um, what's cool about this, though, is in the Kino Lorber uh, Blu-rays, they, you know, have little um, vignettes on, you know, the history of the Night Gallery. And they had a tr- they had trouble putting it into syndication because not all the episodes, uh, you know, were the same length. Unlike the mm-hmm. Twilight Zone, where it was just one episode and, you know, maybe the first act was 10 minutes and the second act was 12 and um if you've seen the night gallery you you have like a two minute episode and then like a 15 minute episode and then like a another 10 minute episode and that was your half Mm -hmm. hour and um some of them were not exactly a half hour some were a little over a half hour so they would start editing then they would add you know if it was short they would add stock footage of you know airplanes or you know cars driving around in the city um and so it didn't really make sense so when they put this back together in a package for Kino Lorber, they restored everything. And they're tearing down Tim Riley's bar is one of the episodes where they put it up on the you put it up on your screen. The left side is the actual aired episode, and the right side, or, or you know, vice versa, the um, restored episode. And it's it's all of like five or six minutes, but it really made a difference in the flow of the story and, and understanding the character development and whatnot. Um, and it's a lot of fun to watch Bill Bixby as a Satanist, too. So, you know, there's, there's those episodes. <laughs> um, those are not out of print. If, if anybody wanted to head over to Kino Lorber, 
they most certainly can and or i'm sure amazon has it you might find it on sale hmm. but uh your mission commander highly recommends the reissue of the night gallery so uh any last minute plugs any bob you you uh, any um any Bay Area film event things coming up or, uh, uh there's one i've been working on for almost uh i don't know probably eight months six eight months something more mm-hmm. maybe more wow and uh they just i've been getting the run around i'm kind of back to square one on it again so that's Ouch. taken up way too much time so we haven't done any other shows of course we'll have Godzilla Fest in August, but um, okay. yeah, we could have done like two or three shows in the time I've been trying to negotiate to do this one. So All right, we'll see how it goes. I uh, I just read an email from the fine folks at Monster Palooza. I guess Bruce Campbell is going to be a guest in June. Yeah, we saw him there before. You guys, okay. <laughs> I've never seen him before, so. Um, we're going to Comic-Con this year, so I don't think I'll make it to Monsterpalooza. Oh, going to Comic-Con. Uh, going to Comic-Con. Going, I haven't been there since 2010, 2009, so. Wow. We'll have some fun. We'll, we'll pass out some t-shirts. We'll hand out some cards, postcards, and see what's what. All right, my friends. Well... This brings us to another conclusion to a very fun episode. I had a lot of fun with all our episodes, but this one I had particular fun with. Um, appreciate you guys tuning in. We appreciate you guys sharing our social media, um, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. Um, just let folks know we're out there, and we appreciate you guys. Stay safe. Take care of each other. This draws our episode to a conclusion. Stay safe. Avoid the disasters. <laughs> On that note, this will conclude this transmission from Planet 8. We would like to thank all of our intergalactic audience for listening. Be sure to head on over to our website at www.planet8podcast.com where you can get more information on this episode's topic. For more conversation, find us on Twitter at Planet8Cast. Or on Facebook at facebook.com slash planet eight podcast we want to thank you guys for tuning in each and every episode we look forward to your input and opinions until next time this is planet eight signing off end transmission by george he's got it it is the end Supposed to be an earth shattering kaboom!